It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to this three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. It's Wednesday, and uh, regular listeners know what that means. Uh, Coming up in about an hour, we have... Our weekly roundtable, known as Armchair Politics, with two hours of commentary and analysis about local, state, and national headlines from the worlds of politics and current events with our roundtable regulars, Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right, and they'll be joined this week by uh, political operative Bobby Clayton Walton. But we start out this morning... Um, this is, is kind of interesting because we scheduled this a couple, three weeks ago, and uh, the news has changed dramatically. Paul Rosicki from Armchair Politics always sends me an email on Tuesdays with a few suggestions about things we might include in our conversation on Armchair Politics. And at the end of the email, he always adds, and whatever else happens in the next 24 hours. Well, we've kind of run into that because all of the news lately has been about um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But um, people just three weeks ago would have been hard-pressed to uh, invade Michigan from Canada because of (laughs) backed-up trucks and uh, protests going on on the Canadian side of uh, the border that uh, we share here in Michigan um, as the Freedom Convoy was protesting. the Canadian government's um, reactions uh, to COVID-19 and and got caught up in this whole argument about masks, not masks, uh, vaccine mandates, etc. And so we set up a a, uh, a time to to talk with somebody who is even closer to it than we are here in Michigan, um, considered to be somewhat of a legal expert on Canada, who lives in uh, Montreal. He is the um, chief um, legal analyst for Esquire Digital. He's been on the show before. In fact, it's always a treat when we get a chance to talk with Aaron Solomon, who joins me by phone. Good morning, Aaron. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Tom. I love how overconfident you were getting in the intro because we are coming to invade Michigan. So you can all just relax. <laughs> Nothing's going to happen. It's all fine. Now it, that the bridge is open, yeah, it's, it's gonna okay. Be, it's going to be just. It's going to be just like a Michael Moore movie. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> We're all coming from Canada. Yeah. We're coming with our health care <laughs> and our French fries with gravy. We're coming to get you. And bacon. Lots of bacon. Exactly. Although the reality is, here in Quebec, we have real bacon, like you would know it. And in Ontario, they have this really thick bacon, which you would think of as ham, which is no good. So you I, want to be invaded by Quebec, is what you're saying. Exactly. And good. and not to mention the fact that, you know, uh, it would also be accompanied by other um, cuisine, uh, French in particular. But the downside, though, is you're getting Celine Dion, so it always balances out. That's the way that life goes. <laughs> Good point. Well, you know, the, sh- the show here is based in Flint, Michigan. We're about uh, a little over an hour from the Canadian border, from the bridge and the tunnel in, uh, that runs from Detroit to uh, Windsor. And if we go a slightly different direction, we go over to Port Huron and over to uh, Sarnia. And um, about an hour in two different directions from here. Um, and, and so uh, there's, there's a sense that people in Michigan, especially in, in southeastern lower Michigan, that there's a lot of back and forth with Canada and, and that we know Canadians pretty well. And this whole um, freedom convoy protest thing is not the Canada that I remember, that I grew up with. Um, Canadians have always been really kind of passive. Maybe it was better that way as we saw the past few weeks. Who knows? <laughs> Only time is going to tell. Well, I, no, I, I, guess what observation, what, I guess what I'm asking is, it, has the mood in Canada changed dramatically? So the mood everywhere has shifted. We know that. I mean, I think that part of what we saw in Canada three weeks ago, which I'm happy to kind of briefly summarize for our audience, was really a global reaction. You know, everybody has been under some type of regulations from from COVID-19 now for two years. And I think that every country, as well as globally, we have pent up frustration. And we saw a lot of that descend, you know, around a month ago into a quote-unquote trucker convoy that decided what their goal was going to be, was stated goal, was to overthrow the government of Canada. And they were going to start to do that by occupying downtown Ottawa, which is our nation's capital, uh, a very kind of different layout than Washington, D.C., but Americans can certainly imagine if a truck convoy would have actually made it to Washington and said, okay, well, we're, we're going to like disrupt the lives of the residents and, and we're not going to leave here. Well, and the goal was, and, and there were some convoys that were trying to uh, assemble and head to Washington, one from Pennsylvania, and I, I think there were one or two from other parts of the country. And, yes. and their stated goal was uh, to tie up traffic. Yeah, and I mean, that wasn't as much the goal here. I believe that the, the trucker convoy here, which mostly came in from Western Canada, you can imagine these trucks had kind of a long, arduous journey crossing what is a pretty big land. You know, imagine like a trucker convoy starting from like Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and heading over to, to Washington, D.C. A lot of it was very much like that. And they really were disruptive. I mean, the thing that you, you'll see in the media, and one of the lasting impressions of the convoy, is they brought their young kids and they brought bouncy castles and hot tubs. And this is kind of part of the lasting media memory is that it maybe wasn't a political movement in some ways, 
as much as it was a movement of a lot of people who felt frustrated and disenfranchised. And and we're trying to um, celebrate freedom in, in a very grassroots kind of way. Yeah, I mean, you know, so the term freedom comes up a lot. And what a lot of the protesters were saying, the interesting thing, by the way, since this protest was 2022, is that a lot of these Freedom Convoy people were live streaming. So there were channels on YouTube where you could watch seven, eight, ten of these live streams at the same time within little boxes. And these were basically people with their cell phones on the ground showing what they wanted to portray as a demonstration about, you know, kind of love and freedom. But in many ways, it turned out not to be that. There was a lot of money, and a lot of this was kind of American and international money behind this convoy. Uh, some of the convoy leaders were arrested, and they're actually still in jail. One of the major leaders got out on bail this Monday. Our bail system here is very different from, from U.S. bail, by the way. So it's, it's not a for-profit bail system. It's something the court sets up. And other leaders within the group are still sitting in jail, awaiting trial. So it's something where the implications are going to be felt for years. There's definitely going to be a federal inquest into what happened and why it got to the point, and this is something that Americans are reading about all the time, why it got to the point where the Prime Minister of Canada, for the first time ever, had to invoke something that's called the Emergencies Act. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the Emergency Act because we dealt with that at a state level in Michigan, and our legislature went back and changed some laws and, and cut some things out, and there was a lot of back and forth between uh, the the Republican legislature and the Democratic governor here in, in Michigan, uh, Gretchen Whitmer. Our, our governor was one of the tougher governors in the country about uh, mask mandates and, and business closures and, and other things, especially in the early days of the pandemic. But I, I don't know that I ever remember hearing anything about a, a federal emergencies act um, in Canada. And, and where, did that, where did that come from, and, and has it ever been used before? It's a really great question, Tom, and it's something that was extremely poorly reported south of the border. Even the New York Times was getting it wrong, and believe me, Canadian large uh, publication houses would love to correct the New York Times. So we <laughs> had this thing called the War Measures Act, and some Americans might remember the War Measures Act. We had something called the FLQ crisis in 1970, and then Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, which is actually Justin Trudeau's dad, um, invoked something called the War Measures Act. But then after the War Measures Act, we had kind of a modification to our Constitution that's known as the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I know Americans have heard that because it's been all over the news the past few weeks. So since the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in 1988, the Canadian Parliament passed something called the Emergencies Act, and this is the first time it was ever invoked. And the way it works is actually really pretty simple. The Prime Minister can invoke it. Parliament has seven days to meet and approve it, although once the Prime Minister invokes it, it's effective immediately. They don't have to wait for Parliament to get together. So it's like an American executive order from a president. And what the Emergencies Act does is give the federal government a lot more power to do certain things. And here in Canada, that power was used to stop these convoy protests. Now, this ended up, Tom, we can get into some of the details, in a big debate 
between people who felt that it was an unjust use of the Emergencies Act and shouldn't other laws work because the Emergencies Act is only allowed to be used when other laws in the country aren't working. Um, and people who thought that, you know, it was a good idea to use it. The reality is once the prime minister invoked it and it got passed by parliament, he took it off within three days, even though it was allowed to be on for 30 days. So as you can imagine, just like in the United States, anytime something gets done and you get the desired result, some people said, well, the fact that he took it off in three days, doesn't that just prove that it never needed to be invoked in the first place? <laughs> and and, and this course, is a question for history, I guess. Yeah. It, well, yeah, it really is, because uh, when, something, when something works, of course you're going to stop doing it. Right. And so this is, these are some of the specifics. It had its as desired to outcome. Exactly, exactly. But, but, so, was Tom, it, but was it the use of the emergency power um, that uh, Trudeau had available to him? Was it that or the fact that mandates were being walked back fairly quickly around that time? Um, I think it was a little bit of both, but more the former, and here's why. I don't think that the Emergencies Act would have ever needed to be used if the police in Ottawa would have done their job. The reality was is that for the first couple of weeks of the trucker convoy descending in Ottawa, the police weren't moving people. They weren't basically enforcing the laws. I was on probably two dozen radio and TV shows where I explained that if I would have driven a couple hours from Montreal to Ottawa and left my car in front of the Chateau Laurier, a famous landmark hotel, before the trucker convoy, you know, the police would have towed it away probably in 10 minutes. But they were allowing a lot of trucks and RVs and SUVs to descend and stop there to form this convoy. So what the Emergencies Act did was allow the RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, who, by the way, aren't just on horses. They actually have cars and vehicles, <laughs> as well as the Ontario Police and the Ottawa Police to coordinate and work together. And once the Emergencies Act was enacted, then you saw police actually doing their jobs and moving people and moving trucks. And is is this a case where by using the act, it, it nudged the police to use uh, efforts and, and methods that were already available to them, but uh, they, they needed the, the push? Correct. Plus, by this time, the time they enacted the Emergencies Act, this became an international embarrassment for Canada. It wasn't just like in the beginning of the convoy where, you know, Canadian broadcasters in our small country were following it, and then maybe a couple of others. It honestly got to the point where it was like a really big deal. Hey, uh, I, and you had people on the ground from the New York Times. Aaron, I need to put a comma here because I have to take a short break. Can you stick around so we can talk some more? Absolutely. All right. My guest is Aaron Solomon. He is the chief legal analyst for Esquire Digital. He lives in uh, Montreal. And we're going to talk some more about the uh, Freedom Convoy and, and other legal matters when, uh, when we return. In the meantime, we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We will be right back. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Hi, I'm State Representative Sarah Anthony. Our community and communities across the country are seeing a rise in gun violence. Firearm injuries are one of the leading causes of death among children. 
Parents, it is your responsibility to know where your firearm is at all times. First, lock your gun away somewhere safe. Also, make sure that it is disassembled and unloaded. It's up to us to prevent gun violence in our community. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with Chief Legal Analyst for uh, Esquire Digital, Aaron Solomon, about uh, some of what's been happening in Canada with regard to uh, uh, vaccine mandate protests and the uh, Freedom Convoy that we heard so much about uh, in recent weeks. Um, Aaron, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. No problem at all. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, anyway, I thought maybe we'd uh, continue correcting the record on uh, New York Times stories. I think that's a great idea. I'm always <laughs> happy to do that. <laughs> um, actually, that came up a little bit in um, in the last segment, talking about what some of the uh, what some of the media in the states and and around the world maybe got wrong about what was going on in Canada. Um, what was it? What what was the point that was missed? So you know, there's a couple things, right? I mean, it's one thing that you, you've got people on the ground from all over the world uh, reporting things with their own bias, which reporters do. I mean, that's not an issue at all. Um, but I think that the fact that everything seemed to be so opaque from what was going on in Ottawa really is a lesson for us with the conflict that we're seeing right now across the world. Uh, because I think it's much more difficult, especially with language barriers, to get really good news. This was in Ottawa. This was a 45-minute plane flight from Washington, D.C. and New York, where everything was happening in English. And some of the factual things that came out from, you know, the fact that it wasn't the first time the Emergencies Act was declared to what the convoy was actually doing was a little bit concerning. And you had Canadian journalists on the ground trying to correct things as we went. So I think it was also a very interesting kind of journalistic thing to see as well. Well, I agreed, and and also because, as, as I said, people in Michigan, um, who feel a little closer to Canada, um, as as other Canadian border states might, um, just felt like a lot of this was completely out of character for Canada. It was almost as if it was hard to believe. And, you know, in part, let's be honest, because it seemed much more of an American-style demonstration. Agreed. And I think that that's partly because of the past few years in the United States. So here's a little secret about Canada. 90% of the Canadian population lives within a two-hour drive of the American border. Not that any of us are going to be able to drive anymore with gasoline prices, but nonetheless, <laughs> they do. So given the fact that they're that close, Canadians have long been affected and influenced by American media. So everything that we saw from, you know, the time President Trump came into power into 2016 forward influenced Canadians. I think it influenced that style of protest and demonstration and political action so that people around the world were commenting that it did seem more of an American thing than a Canadian thing. I think that was a reality. You know, I mentioned uh, earlier when we first started talking about Paul Rosick, he always sends me a, an email with some ideas of things to talk about in the political roundtable coming up in a little while. 
and uh, he always uh, closes it with and whatever else happens in the next 24 hours. In the last 24 hours, um, gas in uh, in the states and and in Michigan have gone uh, up about 56 cents a gallon to something like four and a quarter. What's it going for in Canada since you mentioned it and brought it up? It, it's great because I was doing the analysis yesterday on Twitter. So I got gas yesterday morning in Montreal at 229 Canadian a gallon for premium gas, which my car takes. So I did the math both in the difference between the gallon sizes and the difference between our currency. And drum roll, the gas cost <laughs> me yesterday 579 American per gallon, which was exactly yesterday morning, the average of a price of gas in California. So extremely high. In fact, just this morning, I saw that outside of Paris, gas is going for two euro a liter, which is, you know, a lot more. So then we're getting a lot closer to seven or eight US dollars a gallon for gas. And it's only going to be going up. I mean, given the conflict that we see around the world. So it was very expensive. And just to give you a price point of comparison, it was two twenty nine for a liter for me. I remember it being not much more than a liter a year ago for a dollar. So oh, that's doubled a, in price. A, a dollar a liter, so it's considerably more now. And that and that Double, was yeah. my that was my next question, Aaron, as I was gonna ask you, you know, is is it typically higher in Canada? It is. It's typically higher in Canada than the United States. Um, that's just the reality. Things cost more here. But to see it at $2.29 a liter, and remember, a liter is approximately a quarter of a gallon. We're using imperial gallons, so you do the four-liter conversion, and then your gallon is eight-tenths our size. So we have a larger gallon, so it's not quite that bad. But it's really, really expensive. And I think that what we're going to end up seeing from this, uh, first of all, I think it would be much more expensive today to do a trucker convoy across the country with gas <laughs> than it would have a few weeks ago. Um, especially because, by the way, back to our Emergencies Act, one of the powers the Emergencies Act put into place was it gave the federal government the ability to regulate currency transactions as well as cryptocurrency transactions in a way that's not normally legal. So the convoy had raised approximately $10 million through GoFundMe and other crowdfunding campaigns, and it gave the ability to freeze these accounts. So a lot of people who thought they were getting paid to be part of the convoy didn't end up getting money out. Well, what, what happens to that money? Who, who administers that money? I, I can understand when you're doing a, a truck convoy that, you know, gas is a huge expense, and you know maybe maybe it helped underwrite some of those costs. But but who decided where where was that? Who who was doling out that money, or or is it just sitting there? No, see that's a great thing. So one of the leaders, her name was Tamara Lich, L I C H, uh, who just was released on bail on Monday, I believe it was, after spending a couple weeks in jail. Uh, as I said, some of the other leaders are still there. My understanding in the beginning is she was the person who was charged with dispersing this GoFundMe, which had reached, you know, it started off with a couple of thousand dollars. Right. And before you know it, really driven by American donations, it came to $9.7 million. So GoFundMe, when they canceled the campaign, essentially refunded the money. 
I'm not 100% sure they refunded every single transaction fee, but nonetheless, they were, they were told to give the money back, which they did. And there was also some hypothesizing that people like Tamara Lich, who were in charge of this money, were also paying for their own expenses from it as well. Which may or may not be acceptable, I suppose, depending on your point of view. Sure. Exactly. Um, in as much as Canadians keep an eye on things that are going on across the border in the states, um, what's what's your what are your thoughts about the uh, new Supreme Court nominee? So, first of all, we do um, keep a very close eye on what's going around the states. A lot of Canadians keep a much closer eye on what's going on south of the border. In fact, one of the big refrains of people in the trucker convoy once the Emergencies Act was enacted was people were saying, Canadians were saying, that this is taking away their First Amendment rights. And we had to remind them collectively that we don't have a First Amendment. <laughs> <laughs> so you may have been watching a little bit too much American TV. It's specifically um, now, part of the American Constitution. Exactly. And people even said when they were arrested, <laughs> I, I didn't hear this much, but I did hear this. They were asking for their Miranda rights, and there is no Miranda here, um, either the person or the rights. That said, I actually follow American politics and law much more closely than Canadian. So I've been following what goes on, not just with the Supreme Court nomination, but I write and talk about the Supreme Court all the time. And I think that you know, what President Biden did in nominating Justice Jackson is really come up with someone who is as safe a nominee as possible, given what you and I have talked about a couple times on the show, Tom, which is kind of, I would say, an impending red wave hitting in November, if not necessarily a red tsunami. So the time is of the essence here, and we have the confirmation hearings beginning in two weeks. Uh, and I do believe, as someone who watches the court extremely closely, that he's picked someone who's a very qualified jurist. Um, is Justice, Braxton, Bra uh, Justice Jackson going to get a challenging ride uh, on the way to nomination? Well, of course, that's part of the process. But I personally will be very surprised if, if the justice's uh, nomination doesn't go through. Well, but I... I kind of have a feeling, Aaron, and, and correct me if you, if you see it differently, um, that Justice Jackson's going to sail through aside from maybe a, a rocky confirmation uh, process, the, the hearing itself, the TV part. Agree totally. Completely agree. And by the way, you know, the reason this is so important for those who don't follow the court so closely is because we have a 6-3 conservative majority right now. Now, the Supreme Court, this Supreme Court, is always doing things that surprise us. All you have to do really each week is look at their, their decisions, and they're not always predictable. Also, this Supreme Court has people who have turned out to be really fine jurists, no matter what your political leanings are, and I would say that you know, Amy Coney Barrett is one of these people as well. I think that Justice Jackson uh, is going to impress a lot of people with how skilled a jurist she is, no matter where you sit politically. But the reality, practically, 
is that Justice Breyer was quite left of center when it comes to the Supreme Court justices' political leanings, and Justice Jackson will take this position. Is uh, who ends up uh, filling the shoes of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Nobody in a six-three court. I mean, that's just the short reality of it. Nobody. Uh, if we get to the point eventually, uh, which I don't foresee, by the way, I think that it's going to be a while if the Democrats lose the balance of power for them to get it back. Uh, and I do think that future nominations over the next few years, with nobody scheduled to retire right away. I mean, the Breyer thing wasn't a big surprise, right? Democrats were saying for a while, Breyer better retire while a Democratic president has the chance to make that domination. Otherwise, we're looking at a 7-2 court. Been an so, awful lot of talk least, about uh, Clarence Thomas. Right, but again, you know, so I believe that if Justice Thomas ends up leaving the court, it'll be done so under a Republican administration. So what we're looking at fundamentally, and I'm sure that people are listening to it saying, why does it really matter whether it's a 6-3 court or a 7-2 court? Well, it matters because of voting history of the justices on the cases. And there are a lot of people who write doctoral dissertations and look at metrics of how justices vote. And generally, the court goes as it does philosophically. So a 6-3 conservative court, as we have today, will generally go conservative on big cases. Um, so it really does matter that when somebody like a Justice Clarence Thomas leaves, that he's replaced with someone who's considered a conservative justice rather than a liberal justice to maintain that 6-3-ish majority. Right. But there there are cases, and, and many cases, where you have uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts, um, and we've seen it with uh, Amy Coney uh, Barrett, um, where they didn't necessarily follow the 6-3 line uh, because there were other factors that, that weighed on their decision. Roberts is uh, an institutionalist, an incrementalist. He, he doesn't... Um, doesn't like to get involved in the politics that often make way into the court. Um, and and uh, Amy K uh, Coney Barrett has shown the same sort of uh, predilection for um, being what, what judges like to call, um, what, what is the phrase they use, um, uh, rule of law judges you're right on and in fact you know there are cases even as recent as this week where the justices didn't necessarily decide the way they thought they would decide so for example earlier this week the court rejected um, an enhanced sentence under something called the armed career criminal act for this man who broke into a storage facility and essentially what that act did is it allows them to kind of aggregate crimes uh, to make somebody a quote-unquote career criminal based on here numerous burglary convictions. And the court this week rejected an enhanced sentence in a case that they decided on, which doesn't fit the 6-3 conservative majority. This is a surprise decision. And this happens a lot with 
this court. Interesting. I, I just out of curiosity, and this is maybe way off topic, and maybe not, but how are justices for the Canadian Supreme Court selected? Uh, they're basically put on the court. It's the same kind of thing. Exactly. Is it done by the legislature or, uh, um, or by the the president? Um, so basically, the way it works here is the Canadian Prime Minister. Um, there's nine justices uh, in the Supreme Court in Canada, um, and the Canadian Prime Minister is the person who nominates them. And the fact that there are more than two parties does that impact? Um, the the quote-unquote balance of the court um it, it does but you know the reality is the, the the party in power here which is usually done through a coalition government sometimes the american something americans don't have to deal with because you have two major parties so here in canada right now we have what's called a liberal minority even though it's a strong minority so the Liberal Party, Justin Trudeau's party, doesn't have enough votes to do everything themselves. They have a coalition with a party called the NDP, the New Democratic Party, which is a party further left on the spectrum. Together, they have enough seats in the Canadian Parliament to essentially do whatever they want, even if all of the other parties together voted against them. So this is a very European thing. You see this in European parliaments all the time. The thing is, in Europe, you've got some countries with 10, 11, 12 parties. So their coalitions are comprised of maybe three, four, or five parties. For here in Canada, it's generally a two-party coalition that gets things done. With the divides going on in the two major parties here in the States, since you cover politics in the States a lot, um, is, it, is it possible that either or both uh, political parties, uh, the major political parties in the U.S., could um, eventually split into more than uh, one party each? Well, I mean, it's, it's theoretically and legally possible, but we've seen what happened. It's not that long ago for some of us to remember what happened with Ross Perot and his strong showing as a third-party independent, essentially. It doesn't really work within the American party system because what you have in American politics is the electoral college and not just the popular vote. So let's imagine, hypothetically, that the American Republican Party you know, broke into two segments. Let's say a more right-wing segment, which was smaller. Let's consider that like a third-party run and the rest of the traditional GOP. Well, the thing is, you know, one would take votes from the other, right? The Democrats would like nothing more than that. Because let's say there'd be an election where the popular vote and the electoral vote would be relatively close to 50-50. But now one of those 50s is divided into a segment where one side gets 40, the other gets 10. Well, then the Democrats win 50-40 to 10. And that's exactly what happened in the United States, times where third parties have had a significant presidential result. Let's call significant, you know, 6% or more. It just doesn't work. Um, so it is the same thing in places like Canada, where the party that's in power doesn't always, in fact, I would say more often than not, doesn't get a majority of the votes. They get a plurality. Aaron, a, a quick question, getting back to our original topic about the uh, Freedom Convoy and the protests about uh, uh, mask and vaccine mandates. 
um, there was a feeling that that Canada had been much stricter about public health than the U.S. had been, and that that's what fired these people up and got them together and and protesting. Um, But what about the rates of COVID? How did they compare? Did a, a stronger public policy keep the numbers down, do you think? Well, they did, Tom. I mean, it's not just me saying this is opinion. There are metrics that show that the policies that the Canadian government put in and that the provincial governments followed kept COVID infection rates, severity, percentages of people who died lower here than in the United States. So that's a reality. Now, the argument among the protesters, as you said, is that the mandates that came in, mask and otherwise, um, took away some of their individual freedoms. Unlike the U.S. Constitution, we have something here called the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which wasn't even suspended during the Emergencies Act. And legal experts agree that nothing that was done in these mandates took people's freedoms away that were guaranteed by this charter. So it really depends on one's perspective. But to answer your question directly, yes, we've done better so far, and I say so far because I don't think it's over yet, with this pandemic than has been done in the United States. But how is that not evidence that sticking it out a little longer with strict mandates would end this once and for all, and and then we could go back to enjoying the freedoms that we cherish so much? Tom, you're right. I agree with you 100%. But I think that there's been this collective kind of ennui, this collective sense from people that, you know what, we've done this for two years, and we're just sick of it. So here in Canada, we have like vaccine passports with our with our mobile phones, and those are being relaxed when it comes to people going to restaurants. Restaurants are opening, gyms are opening. A lot of people think these things have opened too early. We're going to be relaxing max mandates here, just as you have in the United States. A lot of people have issues with that, um, and you have some people, and I, I'm going to raise my hand and say that I'm counted among them, who feel that this is a little bit early. Um, I'm still going to wear masks in situations where I feel that it's kind of medically appropriate, given the information that I have, uh, and we're going to end up going from there. I am one of these people who's not a, you know, a doctor or a scientist by background, but do believe that with this behavior, we're going to see the results of it come the end of the summer, the beginning of the fall, and we're again going to be feeling that government may be overreaching in what they're doing, And I think people are going to be very frustrated because, as you said, Tom, we couldn't just maybe behave a little while longer and see if we could get this thing under control. But that's where we are with this collective frustration. And this is exactly the underpinning of the trucker convoy in Canada and the U.S. Well, Aaron, it is always a a pleasure and an honor to talk with you. We're we're out of time, but uh, I, I really appreciate you spending some time and sharing your expertise with me and the listeners this morning, and I hope we get a chance to do it again soon. Thanks for having me, Tom. Take care. Have a great day. All right. You too. Take care. That was uh, Aaron Solomon, Chief Legal Analyst for Esquire Digital, and uh, he resides in um, 
Montreal and uh, knows considerably more about, uh, well, he's considered a, a Canadian legal expert as uh, well as covering lots of things here in the U.S. for a variety of publications. Anyway, we're going to take a uh, short break coming up at the top of the hour. Of course, it's uh, Wednesday, which means armchair politics is uh, straight ahead. Bobby Clayton Walton will be joining our round table, table regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter. So stick around. Hi, this is Joe Biden from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon, they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work, and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hug her, and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car. Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey. Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it, you're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Lone Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan. Quiplet Technology. My Community College. It's pure Michigan. 
friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to tom at tomsumnerprogram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. We used to steal the wheels off of baby coaches to make go-karts. Now those of you that don't know what a go-kart is, a go-kart is made from wood that you take old orange crates and stuff like that. And, and uh, it's, a, it's shaped like an eye, like a big eye. We'll stand it up for you. Uh, a board goes across this way, and then one goes down the middle, and then one goes across this way again. Then you have to make an axis so you can make a left and a right turn, hammer, uh, hammer down rope and everything. So you can make a left and right turn. Then you need wheels. You've got to have baby coach wheels. Got to have them. Nothing else will work. So we used to go out at night stealing baby coach wheels. 287 baby coach wheels we stole. The odd wheel was because Old Weird Harold had a Continental on the back. <laughs> and uh, you get in your, get in your old go-kart there and just sit in it and just pretend that you were driving all over the country. And you gotta have your own music to, run, to ride your, your go-kart. That was my music. I took mine from the from the, the Rough Riders. Albert Harold took his from the Lone Ranger. And Crying Charlie took his from the Green Horner. We had about three million kids all racing with their own music. And so the cops heard about our stealing because the mothers reported, there are kids out here stealing our baby coach wheels. Every morning we put our children into the baby coaches, push them, <laughs> the coaches don't move. Children look up and say, why me? <laughs> so we had to hide them. And uh, we waited two days for the heat to blow over. And we brought them out Saturday. Saturday morning, go-kart championship of America. And we're out there, all of us, full force, 300 kids out there. And we're warming up our, our go-karts at the top of the hill. We had a race on Dead Man's Hill. It was called Dead Man's Hill because it went straight down for about a quarter of a mile and then it emptied out onto a freeway. <laughs> Henceforth the name Dead Man's Hill. And uh, we had everything. We had, we had guys that would make uh, pit stops and everything. If your wheel came off, guys would grab it and put it back on it to uh, have a two-hour pit stop. You know, because it takes a long time to hammer out the nail, straighten it back out, and then put it back in with a rock. You know, you can do it with a nail and a hammer, a real straight one, but you can't do it with a rock. Good. And we had a fireman 
little kid, three years old, used to follow us running down the hill. Had a cup of water in his hand. Whenever you went bad, he hit you in the face with, you know, and put you out, run back up. He was fast. So now we got the go-kart championship of America, and we're all warming up. I'm warming, I'm, I'm warming up my go-kart. Hadn't even gotten out of first gear yet. Old Weird Harold's warming up his Rolls Royce. His sounds like this. And his old crying child. And the kid came out with his father's underwear. He took black shoe polish, made some squares on him, and he waved him. They're off! We're going down the hill. And I'm winning by six inches. Right behind me is old Weird Harold. And he's gaining on me. It's almost like a four-way tie for first place. Old Weird Harold shot past me. Gotta catch up with him. Reached into my pocket, pulled out my trusty can of three-in-one oil. Zoomed ahead. One of the kids went off to the side and actually boosh right in the face. Got him. And I look about 20 feet from the bottom of the hill and I see 900 cop cars waiting. I went to my emergency brake, which is a piece of wood. Push it forward, it'll stop you if you're going about one mile every five weeks. No good. Put my legs down. I gotta stop. The cops are gonna lock us up. No, no. We smashed up 905 six-year-old kids on the ground crying. Oh, oh, the cops are beautiful. Gonna scare us to death. Pull the guns out. We'll shoot them down right here. Kill all of them, boy. Crying Charlie broke. The cops pulled out the cuffs, put the handcuffs on us, and it backfired on them because her wrists were so skinny that as soon as we put our arms down, they fell off. <laughs> hey, Mrs., the things fell off of us, but we wasn't trying to run away or nothing. We was just standing right here. Honest, don't shoot us down or nothing, but they fell off of us because our wrists, and so they thigh cuffed us together, and that's the way we went to jail. Ta dum, ta dum, ta dum, ta dum. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
You know it's always good and leather, baby And it's warmer in the rear
show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. The Tom Sumner program.